and I go to the uh, Philadelphia 76ers who were, had Julius Irving. Just to, all I have to say, they had the doctor. Yeah, sure. And we were a road show. And we were uh, like Mick Jagger and the Stones. Yeah. When we went somewhere, people were at our hotel. No matter what time we got in, the hotel lobby was full of people. And I started falling into that lifestyle. And I started saying, I don't want to be involved. I don't want to get married. And Angie will tell you that, you know, I probably broke up with her about six or seven mm-hmm. times during that period. Welcome to the Lead Like Jesus podcast. My name is Chris Conley. Normally, it's Chris and Karen Conley. Unfortunately, she's under the weather today, but I have an incredible guest. He is a close personal friend, Coach Lionel Hollins. Let me give a little bit of a background. Coach played at Arizona State University. He was drafted the sixth player in the NBA draft in 1975 by the Portland Trailblazers, went on to win a championship with them in 1977, was traded to the Philadelphia 76. Sixers had an opportunity to play with Dr. J and all kinds of other great players in the NBA, but has also had a long and extensive coaching career in the NBA as an assistant coach, but also as a head coach of the Memphis Grizzlies and the Brooklyn Nets. But here's what is most important about Coach Hollins. He is someone who has built his life on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and I think he is someone who leads like Jesus. He is a servant leader. So today you're going to have the privilege of hearing his backstory of really how he became the man of God that he is, the leader that he is. In future podcasts, we'll talk a little bit more about leadership lessons as well. So Coach Hollins, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure and honor, and I'm always humbled when people want to hear something I have to say, so thank you. I've had the privilege of having a lot of conversations with Coach, and one of the things I think that you'll find in these series of podcasts that we'll do with Coach, Coach has this amazing relational IQ of just the ability to really look into people's lives and to be able to discern how to lead people from a relational perspective. I know that started a little bit early in life with you, that when we think about leadership, rarely is leadership just something that initiated in us. We typically had people who were great leaders invest in us. And sometimes great leaders don't always have the title leader beside them. And there was a great leader very early in your life that I've learned a lot about that I would like for you to tell the audience about that maybe when you were growing up, who was that person that was the most influential leader in your life? Well, when I talk about leaders in my life, I'd have to start with my grandmother, who was the matriarch of our family. I was raised with her. I lived with her, my mother two aunts and two sisters. When my mother passed on and my aunt passed on, we were obviously taken in by my grandmother. But my grandmother was a very influential woman because just the fact that she was a woman. And in the times that in the early 50s into the 60s, she was uh, in a situation where, you know, she had no husband and she had all of these children that she was raising, that she was influencing and impacting, and she imparted a lot of wisdom. She told a lot of stories. I hung out with her a lot. I went on jobs with her. I went to pay bills with her. I went to the secondhand store with her. I also went to the city dump with her. (laughs) She spent a lot of time at the city dump. We took things out to the dump. We also bought a lot of things back, and she was very proficient. She played the piano. She also could do wiring. She could do tile. She was very talented and gifted, and I am am amazed, and I admire her because she only had an eighth-grade education. 
Wow. You know, when we are a young kid or a teenager, we don't always appreciate those things in the moment. You know, those are things that we don't necessarily want to do or we don't understand why, you know, our grandmother or our mother or father is making us do those kind of things. In hindsight, when you look back on this kind of experience that she took you with her, you know, and we know that in the life of Jesus, basically he said, follow me. Okay. And there's this learning that's more caught than it is taught. As you look back, what were some of the the things that maybe that you caught from your grandmother? A couple just life lessons, you know, principles that have helped make you who you are. Well, I think the the biggest lesson was uh, being who you are and making sure that whatever you heard that you researched and that you found out whether it was true or not. She had a lot of things that she didn't believe in. She used to say, I don't believe that we sent a man to the moon. I believe it was done in a studio over in Hollywood. Yeah, I don't know whether that was true or not, but she had her beliefs, and she always said, you know, find out the truth for yourself. And as I've gone along, I've tried to do that. When people tell me something, I try to go seek and find out. It's a lot easier today with the technology we have now to just go, Siri, help me with this. So I, I've stuck by that. And the, and the other thing was, you know, she used to say, don't burn bridges. And she used to say, make sure that, you know, when you cross that bridge, that people will let you cross it again when you come back by. And when you go up, there's a time when you'll come down and she says, make sure that you uh, understand that the people that you're walking over, the people that are going to be able to catch you on the way down when you're falling and they won't catch you if you've done bad things to wow. them and haven't respected them. And and the fact that she was a, a menial labor person, she basically cleaned homes and took care of kids for wealthy people. So I respected that and I respect people that are in that position now because I understand when I go to a restaurant, when I go to somebody that's serving on a, on a lower level, I understand that that was my grandmother in those positions. The other thing is she always talked about adversity and talked about, you know, what you had to go through and what you had to overcome. You had to be strong mentally. You had to be tough. She used to, you know, always be on me. Oh, that's not tough. That's weak. You look at you, mop it. Can't even ring out the mop, you know. Squeeze that mop and wring it out. Use those hands, you know. And when we're out in the yard and it's hot and hundred and something degrees in Las Vegas, she was constantly prodding me to be in there and hang in there and not give up. And it taught me a lot about mental toughness, about overcoming what you were suffering physically from your mind saying that I still can get through it. And and those are things that, that stay with me. One of our big things was always... We would go out, and on my birthday, she would make me go to school, and she would take me with her, and she would buy me Mr. Good Bars. She had a real sweet tooth, and I think I developed my sweet tooth because of her. But she would take me with her, and and anything that go wrong, and she goes, you know, everyday life throws you a knife. And she says, it could be a small knife or it could be a big knife. And the way that you deal with it is your attitude. You either catch it by the handle or you catch it by the blade. And she was always talking about your attitude and how you face things because in her situation, she could have folded. But she was letting me know that I stuck with it. I've gone through a lot. I've suffered a lot. I've given up a lot. But I'm still here and I'm still standing. And, and then ultimately, I got from that was that you are who you are. You can't be somebody else. You can't change what your circumstances are, but it doesn't mean that you have to fail. You know, and I I use this when I speak. I say, don't whine about what you don't have, but go out and compete with what you do Mm. have, because that's very important in that situation. And, and, And along that line, you know, it's because you don't have, 
doesn't mean that you are doomed to failure. And because you do have doesn't mean that you're fated for success. It's all about how you approach things and how you deal with things. And so I was constantly trying to prove myself to be better than where I was and also to make the story right. One of the things I love about as I hear you unpack that story is your grandmother operated from a perspective that adversity is a normal part of life. And sometimes we have this fallacy that we think that we can lead well enough that if we lead well enough that that we won't experience adversity. Obviously, as someone who's a coach, you can never be so great that you go undefeated all the time. And even in the undefeated season, you experience adversity. As we think about adversity, talk to us a little bit about how that shaped who you are. You know, as you were a great athlete, obviously, in the high school years and then you went into the college years, how it shaped the determination that exists in you and that ability to overcome adversity. And then maybe, you know, as we progress a little bit through your career, who were some of those additional people that began to lead you and coach you well as you entered into your college years? Well, when I was younger, I was very shy. I was a loner. I could spend hours and days by myself, and I still can do that if I was allowed to. Coming up in that situation, I was very insecure, and I was driven to make the story right, change my circumstances, and I was always developing internal plans. I know that, you know, when I was in high school, you know, I was not going to go to college. I was going to get a job, buy a van, live in my van, and work in a hotel and eat twice a day in the hotel because, you know, you go on your shift, you get to eat, there's breakfast and lunch or lunch and dinner. So I had a plan. I couldn't verbalize. I I wasn't very good at speaking, sharing my emotions. I could write them down on a piece of paper, and I should have kept a diary during those years, but I didn't know anything about that. But the confidence came from coaches. One of my very first coaches was Bill Evans, and he was a teacher, and he became a principal, and he was on the school board uh, later on in life. And he still referees games. I mean, he's in his 80s, and he's still into sports, and he's still pouring into young people's lives. And he was a disciplinarian, and he would be honest about doing the right thing. And he would share with us as being young black men that we had to be perfect. Even though he didn't expect us to be perfect, we were striving to be perfect on the court, off the court, on the baseball field, off the baseball field. He was very influential in giving me that pride of doing everything right in sports and making sure that I stayed on the right track away from the bad elements that all poverty-stricken neighborhoods have. And uh, another guy was Lonnie Carter, who was a baseball coach of mine. And he would tell me, he goes, you know, you could be as good as you want to be. He says, we got scouts out here. We have bird dogs that are watching you. You know, he says, you got to go out there and be you. And for me, I never could understand that I was that good. Also, I had this internal flaw that if I played well, I was a good person. And if I played poorly, I was a bad person. It took me a long time to overcome that. In fact, I was not until I was in my final years in the NBA that I started recognizing that who I was as a person wasn't tied to my performance on the court. Okay, that is a huge point that I am confident that so many of our listeners also battle with 
and it's that performance-driven lifestyle that we evaluate who we are or aren't based upon our performance. If we perform well, we feel secure. If we don't perform well, we feel insecure. What were the things that began to give you the ability to overcome that and not, not have your identity so influenced by your performance? Well, a lot of it had to do with reading about other successful men and understanding the adversity and the failures that they had gone through and what they had come through and how they overcame it. And, you know, Bill Russell was one of my heroes. And he used to say that people would come up to him and ask him, are you a basketball player? And he'd say, no, I'm a man, but I play basketball. That stuck with me that there was a separation that who I was wasn't what I did. As I got older and I started losing my drive for wanting to play due to injuries and just age, starting trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my career, I started losing that drive of trying to be the best I could be, to compete at every moment to try to overcome being poor. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't poor anymore. I started having kids and, you know, and started seeing that they didn't recognize whether I played poorly or not. My wife didn't care if I played poorly or not. She supported me, but she wasn't involved in it. And I remember playing an exhibition game in Las Vegas, and my aunt came to the game, and she said to me, she says, I saw more fight in the backyard when you were playing by yourself than I saw out there on the court. And at that moment, I recognized that I was losing the thing that actually drove me to get to where I was it was that internal flaw. But it didn't matter because I was starting to become the person that I was supposed to become. I, I remember playing for the San Diego Clippers, and we were a horrible team. I played 10 years in the NBA, and I only played on one team that was really bad. I think we won like 25 games or something like that. And I was so frustrated, and I was so afraid to go out and be around other people, go to the grocery store, go to a restaurant, because if somebody recognized me, they're going to think that I'm not a good person because we're losing. And then I would go out and people would come up like, you know, you played a good game last night. It doesn't matter that you lose, you know, and you do things the right way. And, you know, they give you these compliments that, you know, you start like, how can you compliment me when I played poorly or we lost? And it, it just started opening up a new world to me to understand that I was more than just an athlete. I was more than just a basketball player. But I think part of having that flaw was from the poverty, from our circumstances, but also some of the coaches that I played for. When I left our environment and had mostly black coaches, and then I went to high school and almost in fact, all the coaches were white. And my JV coach in football used to just say, you know, you played so poorly, you can't go in your neighborhood. They won't let you go back in your neighborhood. You're a discredit to your race. And then when we played well, oh, you're a credit to your race. You know, it was all this racial things going on that was fueling the flaw that I already had and the feelings that I already had. And that's and then, a lot of pressure. Was, yeah, a lot of pressure. And then as I got older, it's like I look back on my career. I mean, my college coach was not a very charismatic person. He was down to earth, and I think that was why I chose him. He, he treated me like my younger youth coaches did, when in fact that everything was about doing it right, being business-like, no showboating, no gloating over successes. I needed that because that's what I always had, and so I, I utilized that. But he was good to me. He took care of me. My junior college coach is like my father. Hmm. That man brought me into a situation where I was involved in predominantly white school, predominantly white environment in a city, everywhere. And he treated me like I was his son. 
they didn't want me to come to the Kiwanis meetings. He said, if he doesn't come, I don't come. Wow. And the reason that I don't come is because he's going to be here every week. You know, he is the best player. He doesn't even belong in his city. He doesn't belong in our school. I didn't know that. I didn't know I was that good. Mm-hmm. But he kept fueling that in me. And when I'd go against kids that had higher credentials or from New York or California, I always outdid them, mm-hmm. you know, because they were the, the people in front of me that I had to compete with to prove that I belong and that I was somebody. Eventually was drafted number six overall in the draft because I was pretty good, but I couldn't see that. I kept seeing that I had to go and show them that I was supposed to be the sixth player in the draft and that I was supposed to make the team and I was supposed to be thought of as a good player. And that my first three quarters of my career was driven by by that. If I remember correctly, you were drafted in 1975, is that right? Correct. The sixth player by the Portland Trailblazers. And then you guys won the championship in 1977? Right. Okay. So in that process, that's pretty quick success, obviously. And in the world of identity, there's a certain identity there that, wow, now I've already become a world champion. Mm Kind of give us along the way, in addition to that, where did you meet your wife, Angie? And obviously becoming a husband shapes your identity, then becoming a father shapes your identity. And then where did your faith really begin to activate and for that to shape your identity? Well, the reality is that when I was in Portland playing, I mean, to be all rookie, to be all defense, to be an all-star, to be a world champion, I started sliding from my ethic, from who I was. I, I went from thinking basketball was who I was to letting basketball influence who I was. I wasn't true to myself and true to my upbringing, and I started changing a little bit, but... God has a way of knocking you down because I tore my knee. I had about a year and a half, maybe two years of, you know, I'm playing 47 games, 50 games. I can't play. In fact, my teammate yelled at me when we were in the hospital. He was having surgery. We were in the same hospital room. I kept saying, I'm not going to ever play again. My knee is. And he said, shut up. Everybody has knee surgeries. But I didn't know. I'd never been hurt on that level. I never had that kind of surgery. But it was a long road back because the pressures of the team wanting you to come back on the court, it didn't help allow me to to heal my knee completely. And I started playing before I was ready, and I kept having problems. I did meet my wife in Portland. She was 21. I was 24. May have been 25. We were together, but I wasn't ready to get married, and I'm sure she wasn't ready to get married at that time, even though she always tells everybody she saw me on TV and she's that's going to be my husband. <laughs> you know, I certainly didn't know that. But, you know, it's kind of interesting that how we met was that she was out on a Tuesday night when she never went out on a weekday. And we were at a jazz club. She walked in and I saw her and I walked over and asked her if she needed a seat, her and her cousin. And I sat down with them, got her where she worked. As they say, the rest is history. It took a long time for that to fuel. And and then, you know, I, I get traded from Portland, which is a sleepy one team city. And I go to the uh, Philadelphia 76ers who were, had Julius Irving. Just to, all I have to say, they had the doctor. Yeah, sure. And we were a road show. And we were uh, like Mick Jagger and the Stones. When we went somewhere, people were at our hotel. No matter what time we got in, the hotel lobby was full of people. 
And I started falling into that lifestyle, and I started saying, I don't want to be involved. I don't want to get married. And Angie will tell you that, you know, I probably broke up with her about six or seven mm-hmm. times during that period. And then she actually moved to Philadelphia. The year before I got traded, I come home from practice, and she's sitting at the table, and she's got all these one ads for housing, but they were from Houston, Texas. And I was like, what are you doing? She said, I'm looking at houses. I was like, that's in Texas. She said, no, that's where I'm going. She said, I'm not going back to Portland. I'm going to go. And I was like, why are you leaving? She said, well, because you don't know what you want to do. Wow. <laughs> you know, There's a few things in life will straighten out your, your life like a strong woman. Exactly. And, uh, you know, she was always confident outwardly. I, don't, I can't say she was always confident internally, but she was always confident outwardly. I couldn't change her mind. If she decided that this is how she wanted to do or where she wanted to go, there was no changing. And she's still like that today, although she probably gives in more to me today than she did back then. And I certainly give in a lot more to her over the time as well. But that struck me and made me, you know, had to make a decision. I could keep living the lifestyle I was living and being famous, or I could come back and bring myself back to center. So fair to say that was a wake-up call. It was a very, you know, loud wake-up call. (laughs) It's like the trains and the planes and screaming and everything else all at once. And uh, next year we did get married things started changing from from that perspective. I don't know if I came full circle, but I remember telling her, I said, let's go to church on Easter. It was Easter. I Mm -hmm. said, let's go to church. She said, why are we going to church today? We haven't been all year long. And so now all of this is starting to hit me. So when I quit playing, a friend of mine invited us to church. And after a few weeks, we joined church. And then I went to the men's Bible study. And then I started studying and learning and growing And then all of a sudden, my life actually flipped over. You know, instead of being what I considered always down, I started being always up. Mm. You know, instead of having perpetual adversity, I started having adversity that just came like most people have. And and the majority of my life was good, even in bad times, not having jobs. You know, God was always guiding me and leading me and always putting people in my life that— were directing me in the right path. I thank God for that because I very easily could have just checked out and gone away of a lot of people. And he continually tapped me on the shoulder and he continually put people in my life that always, I mean, I remember staying in L.A. while I was playing and this guy I was shooting pool with in our apartment and he says, do you have a personal relationship with God? And I'm like, why would he ask that? I don't know you from Adam, right? And he just asked the question. And he didn't get a response from me, but it made me think. And I always had those kind of moments. I was playing in the NBA, and I fractured my forehead, and I'm laying in the hospital. They're going to do surgery in the morning. And a pastor walked in that was a chaplain for the team, but I, I didn't really go to chapel or anything. And he walked up, and he prayed for me. The next morning, they found out that they weren't going to have to do surgery. My fracture had healed to a point where that, that I didn't have to go through surgery. And I always think about that guy, and he was always around, and he'd give me a Bible, and he, you know, it was like God was always with me, even though I wasn't with God. Right. So one of the things you said earlier is that your grandmother taught you to kind of search out the truth. Mm-hmm. So in this wake-up call, Angie kind of confronts you, and then through that process, y'all get married, and then you begin to return to your faith. This gentleman asks you that question. 
What was the process from there where you then began to kind of search out that truth for yourself? And it's not someone else's faith. Now you're owning it and you're rebuilding the foundation. Well, even though we had joined this church and I was studying, I started going to a mosque guy that I met on campus because I went back to school and then I coached at the university and I met this guy who was Muslim. And, you know, he was telling me this isn't true and that isn't true. You know, you, you need to come to the mosque. And I went a couple of times. I, I never got a sense that I was going to learn anything there. It was like you go and you pray and you come in, you know, five times. And I was like, well, where's the literature? Where's it telling me about what your faith is about and how I'm to go? And he couldn't tell me any of that. And neither could the imam that was there. Mm -hmm. It was like, you just come and you pray. I go and I pray, and there's a bunch of men in a room, and we're kneeling, and we're praying to the east. And I didn't get any kind of confirmation that that was right for me. So I stopped, and I told the guy, like, you know, I need some structure. I need something that's tangible. And even though people will say, well, how can you believe in God? You don't see him. But there's a lot of tangible things about Christianity that that you can latch on to, and I couldn't find that there. And so I was searching and trying to find where I was going to go, and, and eventually I came back to where I was going to church. And I never really stopped. I was just exploring other right. avenues. And from then on, you know, it, it's kind of been like that. And I think that my work as a coach with the Grizzlies, I think I went through the same thing of losing my identity and thinking that it was me and not God. When I went to New York, I think God says, I'm going to take care of you financially, but you need to go back and get in the wilderness and do some more studying and learning. Our times together, you and I, also, uh, you know, the lead like Jesus, experiencing God, all of those studies and conferences and what have you, as Angie says, she says, you're different. She said, you're different. She says, I do get up. You know, if I'm the last one out of bed, even if she gets up and leaves, I'll make the bed. I would never do that before. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything until I was asked. But, you know, I started seeing her, as I said, I said, I see you as God sees you. Because when I pray and I pray about you, God reveals that you are important to him and that I should treat you as you're important to him. I should treat other people that he feels that are special, important, which is everybody, and that I should start doing that. And so at the more I learn, the more I study and trying to be an example like God, I started understanding it was me. It was from, it was starts with God living in me and me trying to let God live through me, but I had to be and act, renewing my mind and trying to uh, understand God better. Coach, when people look at people, they typically look at them through the lens and define them through how successful they've mm -hmm. been. So obviously, you played your major college basketball at Arizona State. Then you went to the Portland Trailblazers. You played a 10-year NBA career. You had your jersey retired with the Trailblazers. You won a championship with the Trailblazers. You mentioned that you played with Dr. J. You've been a coach in the NBA for the last 30 years. You've had the opportunity to be a head coach of the Memphis Grizzlies and the Brooklyn Nets. And all of those things are amazing accomplishments, especially given the season of life that maybe the era, I should say, that you grew up in and the challenges for an African-American mm -hmm. man. But if God were to describe 
who Coach Lionel Hollins is today. If you were to look at who you are today from his perspective, instead of giving all of those accolades, what would you say God is most excited about that is happening in your life today, who you are today? I think God would look at me and he says, not finally, but you're headed in the right direction in terms of surrendering your life and being consistent with your prayer life, with your studying, renewing your mind and doing the right things. I think that's how he would look at me. I, I can't say finally because it's an ongoing, it's like being an alcoholic. It's an ongoing, I can re- recall if I go two or three days without studying that something comes and jumps in my life that I don't need in my life. It's constantly to keep the devil out, to keep all the things out that could harm me and turn my head. It's about staying in God's Word and allowing the Spirit to be operating well within. I use this here. I say, I I always pray, God, let your Spirit increase and me decrease. Mm -hmm. Let me be that vessel that you want. When, When I get up, let me go and touch somebody's life today. However it is, it's a daily walk. So now that you've had the privilege of hearing the backstory of Coach Lionel Holland's life and how he really became the leader that he is, the man of God that he is, in our next podcast, you're going to have the opportunity to hear really some of the leadership lessons that are beyond the X's and O's. You'll have the opportunity to hear some stories of maybe what he learned from other NBA coaches or leadership lessons that he learned from coaching and working with other players. So you're in for a treat as we do future podcasts. But for now, what I would like to do is invite all of you to learn more about the Lead Like Jesus ministry, for you to access all the incredible resources that are available to you and to really become a part of the Lead Like Jesus family. You can learn more by going to leadlikejesus.com, leadlikejesus.com. My name is Chris Conley. Look forward to seeing you next time.